Deuteronomy chapter 22, and today I'm preaching on the topic of consent and marriage, and I'll explain uh, the, the reason for that. Deuteronomy 22. Verse 1. You shall not see your brother's ox or a sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And you shall, you shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whatever, whoever do, does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall, not, you shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself that it may go well with you, and that you may live long. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house, if anyone shall fall from it. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited, the crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. You shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman and then, and when I came to near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity, then the father of the young man, woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city and the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him, and they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman, because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel, and she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days. But if the thing is true, the evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city, and you shall stone them to death with stones, the young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the woman, young woman, she has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met her in the open country. And though the betrothed young woman cried, up, cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. 
If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. A man shall not take his father's wife, so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for wisdom as I go through a specific section in this this, uh, passage that we at least we view as difficult and uh, culturally troubling. And so just pray that you give me grace and wisdom, and um, I need your Holy Spirit to be able to preach this properly, effectively, and to do honor to your word. And I pray that I would not add to or subtract from your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So the topic of the sermon is consent in marriage. And the reason I'm addressing this topic today is because this is one of the most controversial passages in the Bible. So, of course, I'm going to pick it. Uh, But specifically, I have interacted with unbelievers on this very passage recently and um, who who have come out and um, argued the point that the Bible condones rape, that the Bible says that a woman uh, should be given over to a rapist, and is basically like a loaf of bread that can be sold. Um, so those are the allegations I'm up against, and I'm preparing a response to that. Um, so rather than just kind of keep that to myself and do a, the Facebook discussion, wanted to address this, because if I'm seeing this, I've, I've actually come up, up against this with multiple people multiple times, and I know that from other people, this is one of the primary passages that an unbeliever, an atheist, an agnostic, a skeptic, is going to throw up against the believer. And like it or not, because too often the book of uh, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, too often the Pentateuch is an area of shame for believers. Um, it's one of those things, it's almost like when people come over to visit your house, where there's there's that room that you kind of like <coughs> close the door, or the thing that you put away and you... You, you try to keep out of sight of company, that's kind of what we want to do with some of these passages too often. And I, I'm here to say that we shouldn't, and we shouldn't be ashamed of them. We do need to properly understand them um, and interpret them. And I would, I would submit to you that the way that I'm going to read to you some of the accusations from unbelievers on the specific passage that we're going over, uh, which has to do with, um, towards the end of the, the end of the uh, chapter specifically if a man seduces well that's exodus but in deuteronomy if a man meets a virgin who who is not betrothed and sees seizes her and lies with her and they are found then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he's violated her he may not divorce her all his days so that's the specific passage i'm going to address of course i'll address some of the surrounding uh, passages in addressing this passage but even if we wanted to, which we shouldn't, but I understand, even if we wanted to sweep this passage under the rug and try to hide it from sight of the guests, they're not going to let us. Because the, what, what's the antagonistic culture going to do is going to go to a passage just like this. And most Christians, including myself, until I started encountering this, were not equipped to try to handle and to respond to this. And of course, what... A lot of us Christians will tend to do in a situation like this is we will come up with arguments 
in favor of the Bible and Christianity that don't hold water. And arguments that are really invalid, illogical. And in doing that, these unbelievers are going to see right through that. And this is exactly the type of passage that when Christians go to a, a university and they're sitting with their liberal pr professor, this is the type of passage that's going to be brought up. And you have a Christian who's never been trained to deal with this type of thing, who's going to be grilled by some professor or some uh, class member or some, some other student, and have no answer. And because they weren't equipped to take some by surprise, oftentimes a specific passage, this passage has been the shipwreck of many uh, believers because they, they had no answer. They didn't know how to respond to it, and they, they felt like, completely dismayed that, well, the Bible does teach that. My parents never prepared me for that. My church never prepared me for that. So today I want to help prepare you as I'm preparing to respond, and I will be responding to this individual uh, to respond to this. Um, the view of the world towards the Bible in general, and specifically, especially the Old Testament, is that of it's a barbaric book. And too often us Christians have that perspective ourselves, or the barbaric section of the scriptures, where the God, the quote-unquote God of the Old Testament was a less developed God, more base carnal God that just had to do with base things, carnal things, to the point that those like Marcion in the early church actually taught, because of their Greek philosophy, led them to hate the Old Testament, and the fact that it dealt, dealt with earthly things, because the Greeks just wanted to deal largely with philosophical, abstract concepts. So they were trying to separate Christianity from this, what they viewed as a base earthly religion that spoke to earthly things. And um, he actually, and other heresies in the early church, throughout the life of the church, have actually posited and said, there's, there's one God for the Old Testament and a new God for the New Testament. And so you have this old, old God who was barbaric and, and to the point that some of these, these cults in the history of the church have actually called the God of the Old Testament Satan. And then that there's this new God that delivers us from the God of the Old Testament. So there's been cults throughout the life of the church, multiple cults over thousands of years that have taught this evolutionary view of the Bible that the old is to be thrown out, the new is, is good. Now, in addressing that, there's a hint of truth not so much in what they're saying, but in the fact that the Bible does set forward shadows that are fulfilled with, with the reality. And so there are things like physical things that represent spiritual things in the new, but that is not a shift on the part of who God is or his morality or what he said. And while some of the specific things like the candles and the temple and the washings now point forward to something that's fulfilled, it's not that the heart of God or his, the principles behind those things have changed, uh, so, for example, the washings and sprinklings represented baptism, which represents, even today, we have physical things. It's not that God's carnal. He helps us to understand. But baptism, sprinklings, point forward to, or point to Christ and his work on the cross and the giving of the Holy Spirit, the washing of the Holy Spirit. So, there's a unity. There's a continuity. There's, even in those things where the shadows have now become fullness, there's, there's a... The same God, the same principle, the same truth, just the fullness now being manifested. At the, the, when Charles Darwin came along, so this stuff has been around for a long time, but Darwinism 
added to this perception. And our thinking of the scriptures has been drastically altered by evolution. We don't even realize to what extent where even the rise of, you know, hype dispensationalism and this idea that there's this, this progression from physical to spiritual completely. God's not interested in those things anymore and we should discard. God actually changed his mind in the new versus what he did in the old. Fueled by the worldview of evolution. So when we look at the Bible, we should not look at the Bible through evolutionary glasses. We should not look at the Bible through the lens of Darwinism. We need to look at the scriptures in terms of themselves. Um, and when we look at this law, which is Moses, uh, both in Exodus giving the law the first time, this, this law is given, and then retold in Deuteronomy, so often today Christians want to say, oh, well, that was Moses. That wasn't God, that was Moses. But if you read Moses and you read the New Testament about Moses, you realize that Moses wasn't coming up with stuff. Moses wasn't just speaking out of turn. Moses wasn't just filling in because God hadn't spoken. Moses did nothing. He was a prophet. He did nothing but relay and give the things that God divinely gave him. For example, in many other instances, but on the mount, God gave his law. So it wasn't Moses creatively writing up some, some law to help the Israelites in the Old Testament that would, would later be discarded. It was actually God and reflective of God and his character. So we do have to have the lens of what has been fulfilled in Christ as far as the ceremonial laws, what actually has ongoing validity, what, what has ongoing application today. Today I'm going to emphasize the need for there to be consent in marriage. And that was the one thing that really the, one of the discussions recently came down to is the idea that the Bible is not in favor of consent on the part of a bride in marriage. That marriages basically were contracted between a husband and the father, and that's the way the Bible presents things, which I, I am going to show you is not the biblical view of marriage. And I'm going to show you that in order for there to be a valid covenant, the wife had to, the bride had to um, concur and agree to the covenant as well and consent to it. And that's basic to the biblical idea of marriage. The challenge is not so much the actual text, it's the perception, it's the misunderstanding of the text. In this case, it's actually a bad translation, partly. Um, and also, the, these people coming out against this, these laws oftentimes are completely misrepresenting them. So that's what I want to separate. Exodus twenty two sixteen. So this law is found in two different places. The first is in Exodus. This is the first giving of the law. Exodus 22 says, If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Deuteronomy 22 is the retelling of the law. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. 
Um, and by the way, this obviously touches on, I'm not going to go deep into rape or anything like that, uh, as far as the describing that law today, or, the, you know, I'm not, I'm going to try to be appropriate with this, with this description. And so this passages like this during prohibition, the move for prohibition, there was the temperance movements and there were these, these gals and there, there was actually talk of editing out these sections of the Bible because they weren't holy enough, they weren't spiritual enough, and so they were going to create a more spiritual Bible that didn't talk about things like this. So if you're wondering on the validity of preaching on something like this, I'm going to tell you, I don't focus my preaching on this, but it's in the Word of God, it's relevant, you're going to come up against this, and, and we should be able to appropriately preach on this. It's not inappropriate to preach and even mention uh, the sexuality involved or the, the words involved that, that uh, are unpleasant to talk about, but it's, it's here in the Word of God, something that human, human beings deal with. Um, so today I'm not going to emphasize the side on um, rape as much as this last law, and I'll show you that there's a difference. One of the, 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 fir- one of the first discussions I had on this topic was where the individual was asserting that God's law rewarded a rapist with uh, marriage and the wife, the gal was punished by having to marry him. And I want to be clear, this law that we're covering today is not about rape. And and thankfully, we have a translation issue that that tends to lead to that perception. So I don't want to separate it from that. Um, But here are some of the objections. Here's some of the actual things I'm hearing and I've heard, and you'll probably hear as well. But this is actually quotations. So here's uh, the skeptic saying, unless you rape a virgin, then you got to give the father a goat and some silver. Pretending your book is the foundation of morality is laughable. Um, He said, the Holy Bible says that a woman can be sold to a rapist after he violates her. Um, This was a a different interaction. The laws describe a situation where women are practically chattel, the property first of their fathers and then of their husbands. And the covenant was between the parent and the groom. So... Of course, I'm going to submit to you that people coming with these axes to grind aren't coming to the text objectively and trying to understand what the text says, but oftentimes are being preconditioned to um, to hate these texts with some, some misconceptions about the text themselves. And the other thing that gets frustrating in a discussion like this is what I'm going to do today is I'm going to compare Scripture with Scripture. And I'm going to say that we can't just look up one scripture as our end-all be-all and then understand the topic that that one scripture talks to. I'm going to show you a number of different scriptures that help support the idea, the truth, that the Bible requires consent for marriage. When you do that as a Christian, the atheist is going to say, cry foul and say, you can't do that, you have to just look at this text. Whoever kind of, in a sense, makes the rules of the debate can kind of win the debate, and we can't let them demand that we butcher the text because you cannot get a biblical teaching. That is not how the 
Bible interprets itself. It's not how Jesus interprets the Bible. It's not how Paul or Peter interprets the scripture. When they come and they, they sum up the scriptures, they're looking at multiple passages and they're making an argument from scripture, comparing scripture with scripture. The danger of looking at one text is you can wrench that text out of context and come away with something that contradicts other scripture. And of course, in their mind, that's fine because they don't think that there is an inspiration of scripture. But the Bible touches on enough topics that it, you have to look at what does scripture say about scripture, compare scripture, and make sure that you're getting a full picture. Because like any teaching, it's not going to have everything in every little bite-sized piece. And if you were to record me, even in the sermon or in a conversation, and then edit out context, you've seen this with, with presidents and things like that, you can come to just about any conclusion you want to. Um, okay, so handling these objections. And at the heart and soul of the objection with the last individual is that he denies that the Bible, he thinks the Bible does not teach consent. He doesn't think that the Bible requires consent. There's no consent in Scripture, uh, when it, not just in this case here, but period, when it comes to marriage. That in the Old Testament framework, uh, it was completely between the, as he says here, um, between the parent and the groom. That's, that's the marriage. So some of the assumptions. First of all, the assumption when they come to this passage is it's dealing with rape. We're gonna, I'm going to address each one of these. The second is the Bible holds an inferior, inferior view of women. They come to the table with that prejudice against the scripture. The third is that the Bible views women as property or chattel. The fourth is the Bible does not require the consent of the bride for marriage, only the groom and the father. And the fifth, the Bible holds to a tribal view of the family in which marriage is between the parent and the groom. So I'll deal with each of these as quickly as I can, hopefully to try to keep it um, so that you can kind of follow. And um, my goal here, too, is not that you'd be able to just walk out and defend this, but that you do some homework yourself and have a good starting point. So I'm going to demonstrate that the Bible has, holds a high view of women, doesn't tolerate rape. In fact, like I forget the statistics, but our justice system, our, our, our rapists can be, be back out on the street within minimal time. The average is so low as far as how long they actually have to spend in the prison, whereas the scriptural law that comes before this says that rape should be punished by death. So there was no tolerance for rape in the scriptures, which was ironic with the first discussion because he was acting like modern man has come to this high view of, of rape and we, we, we don't tolerate it, yet the Bible tolerated it and even rewarded it when the very chapter that he's reading actually condemns rape and says that it deserves the death penalty. And that is not how we treat rape today. We talk about as if we, we think it's a big deal, but then when you let people out, and I should have looked up the statistics again on how quickly people are let out on average, but it's, it's amazing. <clears throat> like, it was shockingly quick how quickly somebody can get out of the prison system after raping. Um, the Bible doesn't tolerate it. God hates it. It's condemned. And in a biblical society in the Old Testament, it was condemned to the point that it received the death penalty. Um, and I'm not going to actually go into that passage in, in depth, but that's one of the laws that came before this. Um, so the first assumption that they bring to the table is that this passage is dealing with rape. 
So a summary of chapter 22 is that verses 13 through 22 deal with crimes involving married women. So first of all, a bride is accused of premarital promiscuity, but is innocent. And the result is the bride and her family receive damages. Second, a bride is accused of premarital promiscuity and is guilty, and she's executed. The third is a man and a married woman commit adultery. Both are executed. Um, Then in verses 23 through 29, they deal with crimes involving an unmarried uh, woman. The first is a man and a betrothed woman commit consensual fornication. Both are executed. Now, this is the part that I can't ease the shock of this because in our post-sexual revolution society where we think that it's fundamental human right that there, there is no punishable sexual um, offense, uh, which is different than our culture has held to for up until recently, I can't ease the shock of what the Word of God says on that topic, and I have to concur with it, even though culturally it's hard uh, because we're all swimming in this cultural stew to um, to kind of just to see that, but that this is how high this is how highly the Bible lifts up the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of marriage, sex within marriage, and um, the violation of that fundamental order. The more fundamental than the state and the government to the Bible is the family, and the violation of that family unit is punishable severely in Scripture. Uh, And if you don't like the way that God punishes these things on earth in the Old Testament, then you're probably not going to like the way he, in the New Testament, says that uh, fornicators and adulterers, etc., those that go on in these sins and don't repent of them and confess their sin and and put it under the blood of Christ and turn from it, they, they can have no inheritance in heaven. So... In some ways, not to diminish the effect of this, but this is a small thing compared to what the New Testament reaffirms when it comes to eternal consequences of ongoing willful sin, unrepentant sin in these areas. Um, So the Bible throughout Old and New Testament condemns sexual sin outside of marriage between one man and one woman. And I cannot and we should not try to soften the blow culturally but instead, we do need to point to the, the beauty of marriage as God has created it and that he, uh, his, you see his good heart towards preserving and protecting the family in marriage. Um, so a man is found guilty of rape. He's executed. A man and a non-betrothed woman commit consensual fornication. This is the passage we're covering. And damages are due to the girl and her family. Now, there's the argument for the fact that Deuteronomy 22, 28 through 29 is not dealing with rape, but is dealing with consensual sex is proved. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's obvious when you look at the text. So there's four points. The first is a comparison with Deuteronomy 22 with Exodus 22. And Exodus 22, there's the same law. You have Moses retelling the law in the first version. He shows that no force is involved. In fact, it's he seduces you know, a, a man seduces a woman. So the seizing of the girl, as the word is used in, in some of our translations, has more to do with seduction than coercion in, in Deuteronomy 22. Two, the second argument is that the verses immediately preceding this passage have already dealt with rape. 
and the, the crime is specified, the rape, rapist is executed, there's no reason for it to, re, to repeat that and to go over it again. The, the consequences are different, and so it's obviously different crimes with different consequences. The third is there's a statement in Deuteronomy 22, 28 that says, and they are discovered. In other words, it's not just the man who is found out, it's both of them. It's a case in which both the man and the woman somehow share a portion of the blame. Therefore, there is no force involved, and it is not rape, but their action has been discovered. Um, the man cannot just walk away from a sin. He has put the young woman in a very difficult life situation in which there would be few or no other men who would want to marry her. Given the culture that they were in, God holds both the parties accountable, instructing them to get married and stay together. Now, that's an oversimplification on the last part. We'll talk about that. Um, the fourth, there are two distinct Hebrew words used in the same passage. So the, in the, the, the passage that's actually dealing with rape, it uses the Hebrew word for rape. The word translated rape is the Hebrew word chazak. But verse 28 contains a different verb that's translated seizes in the ESV tafas. And Bonson, I'm not going to read this whole thing, but Bonson goes through and he says that the, the Hebrew word tafas, lay hold of, simply means to take hold of something, grasp it in hand, um, is a verb used for handling, uh, a harp or flute, uh, an instrument, um, taking, so it, it grasping, it's not a violent seizure, is not seeming what it's, what it's indicating here. This passage is dealing with consensual sex outside of marriage, um, not rape. So the memes, and the, the last conversation I had was generated because I shared a meme that I, I saw on a local page where people were sharing a, a completely grossly exaggerated and, and wrong interpretation of this in attacking Christianity. Um, the memes are just wrong in their interpretation of this because they're painting, like, if the Bible actually... As much as we have to submit to what the Bible says, if the Bible actually said that rapists should be rewarded with, you know, let's just say I love what the Bible says about rape, that it's to be punished. It's not to be tolerated. It's to be punished as severely as anything else. Now, the other assumption that they bring to the table is the Bible holds an inferior view of women. The scriptures are fairly unique, if not unique, in the ancient world, and in the world for that matter, as far as teaching, not just by implication, but the value of women, men and women. And we see that in the most concrete way possible in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God didn't just make man in his image, because there's actually Christians who will blow right past the scripture and somehow think that somehow women weren't made in God's image, but God made men and women in his image and elevates both men and women to as image bearers. And that is unique among ancient cultures. You will not find that kind of regard outside of the Bible towards women. Um, the Bible stands in stark contrast to other religions and worldviews concerning women, ancient and modern. Uh, John MacArthur has this to say. He says, Modern technological advances have enabled the, cultural, the culture to, to mainstream the degradation of women like never before.
But ancient cultures were no better. Women in pagan societies during biblical times were often treated with little more dignity than animals. Some of the best-known Greek philosophers, considered the brightest minds of their era, taught that women are inferior creatures by nature. Even in the Roman Empire, perhaps the very pinnacle of pre-Christian civilization, women were usually regarded as mere chattel, personal possessions with their husbands or fathers, with hardly any better standing than household slaves. That was vastly different from the Hebrew and biblical concepts of marriage as a joint inheritance and parenthood, as a partnership where both father and mother are to be revered and obeyed by the children. So God elevates not just the father to be obeyed, like in the paterfamilias, where technically speaking, a Roman father had the power of life over his wife and his children and his slaves, but the Bible elevates both the husband and wife as um, working together in parenting the children, and the, the children are to honor not just the father, but the mother as well. And you can, you can test this out, and it's a, it's a little bit of a grisly history, but go, go into the history of any culture outside of Christ and its view of women and how women were treated, and, and look, at it object, look at it without the, oh, other cultures are somehow better lenses on, and see the, see the way that women were treated in time past. And it's not, it's not a pretty picture. Contrast all of that ancient and contemporary with the Bible. From cover to cover, the Bible exalts women. In fact, it often seems to go out of the way to pay homage to them, to ennoble their roles in society and family, to acknowledge the importance of their influence, and to exalt the virtues of women, who are particularly godly examples. It's phenomenal that um, in the Old Testament we have a book like Ruth, and that we have the examples of women who are mentioned in the heroes of the faith, like Rahab, and we have, the, we have even uh, Deborah and other women who are elevated as as godly examples. From the very first chapter of the Bible, we are taught that women, like men, bear the stamp of God's own image, Genesis 1.27, and then chapters 5 and 1 and 2. Men and women were created equal. Men play prominent roles in many key biblical narratives. Wives are seen as venerated partners and cherished companions to their husbands, not merely slaves or pieces of household furniture. And he gives some scriptural examples. At Sinai, God commanded children to honor both father and mother. Now, if you think that that's biased, because yes, John, John MacArthur is a Baptist pastor, and of course he's going to be, you know, he's, I think he's speaking truth, but he's, he's going to be uh, touting that. But then you come to men like Tom Holland. Tom Holland kind of sort of, like, because he loves the Christian worldview, he didn't start off loving the Christian worldview, he... He says he's kind of Christian-esque, but he's not. I wouldn't say he's a oh, a born-again believer who sees the Word of God as authoritative. But Tom Holland started, and he tells a story in his book, Dominion. He started off as a with a hatred of Christianity and a desire to see the beauty of Greek and Persian civilization. And he actually excelled in his studies of those areas and launched his academic career in those directions. But the more he studied the Persian and Greek cultures, the more he realized he just loathed them. They didn't have, the morality was, was missing, it was wrong. I mean, when you look at those Romans that you're reading, those Roman philosophers were, were pedophiles, largely. Um, when you look at the, when he saw the bankruptcy of those cultures, uh, so he wrote this book, Dominion talking about the great Christian revolution and talking about the benefits and the blessings that it's given to, to, to the elderly, to women, and to children. Um, he says, 
Christianity gave women a dignity that no previous sexual dispensation had offered. That every human being possessed an equal dignity was not remotely a self-evident truth. A Roman would have laughed at it. To campaign against discrimination on the grounds of gender or sexuality, however, was to depend on large numbers of people sharing in a common assumption that everyone possessed an inherent worth. The origins of this principle lay not in the French Revolution, nor in the Declaration of Independence, nor in the Enlightenment, but in the Bible. So there's a, um, a secular perspective uh, on, on the Great Transformation. So, but the, the perspective, the, in a sense, whatever the Bible says regarding women is going to be damned before it's given a chance when you have this mindset that holds that it's barbaric, that there's a hatred for women, etc. The next assumption is the Bible views women as property or chattel. Now, there's no support for this. And I would just turn to the individuals I've interacted with and, and I have asked them, what is, where, where are you getting this? Show me this in scripture. Where is, where is the denigration of women in scripture in the view that they're just property and chattel? Now, there's some reasons that lead them to think that, and I'll try to address those, but you can't find this low view of women's scripture. I forgot to mention, too, the example of Christ. Um, Christ had spe special love and, and regard and friendship with the women he spent time with and served and washed feet of women. Um, there's no low view of women when it comes to the life of Christ. So the burden of proof is on the part of the person making the accusation because it, it tends to just be based in their assumption. Um, largely, this is stemmed from the, head, the, the truth that the Bible does teach the headship of the husband and father, but not the tyranny or the oppressive, does not tolerate the oppression of the husband or father over the wife. So there's a, there's a beauty properly understood with the headship of a husband or father in that he is the one who is radically responsible for what goes down in his family. He is to, to be actively involved. He is to um, ultimately responsible for final, the, the final decision. Of course, he's going to include his wife in, in those processes and often his, his children and work together. She's, a, she's, a, um, she's an, called an equal heir. She is a helpmeet and his helper. And so... The Bible doesn't give any room for just complete disregard and you know, low views of women whatsoever. But at the end of the day, somebody has to make the final decision and be responsible for that final decision. And the, the Bible does give that headship to the man as a husband or father for what goes down in the family. And he's also, there's a responsibility for, for the, the consequences of the actions. And the Bible doesn't just set up the husband as the sole authority only authority without checks and balances. There's the local church. There's the civil authority. If he's out of line to the point that he's being abusive, uh, the, and I would just say this, if, if, if anybody in your family, but particularly husband or father, is being abusive, is being tyrannical, is grinding in their rule, um, is, there's who knows what, is, is, is out of line in the way they're behaving, it would be good to seek some help and to ask for help. If the husband won't let you think your own thoughts, say anything, it's just shooting down every single thing. I'm not talking about 
normal stuff here, but there's an abusive situation where there's a grinding oppression on the part of the father or sexual abuse or physical abuse where the father or husband is getting physical. If dad or husband is getting physical, then it's time to reach out to the church and probably, especially we're talking sexual physical abuse, reach out to uh, civil authority. So this headship in the Bible is never just this lone thing where the husband's off being the tyrant of his family by himself. And it emphasizes his need to love, to wash, to serve, and to um, lay his life down for, and to be responsible to other authorities as well. But that's part of why, because the Bible does emphasize that with all kinds of... um, It doesn't allow you to go in the other ditch, but it, it does emphasize that. And because that's not in fashion today, that leads to the perspective that oh, women are just seen as, pro- as, as property or chattel. The other one that's interesting is the bride price. Now, the bride price is seen as like this, and that's one of their big objections with this type of passage, is that there's a change, exchange of money. Now, you can't find this explicitly in Scripture that I could find, but the way the Jewish... Uh, people have always interpreted these laws is that that money that was given to the family and to the father was belonged to the wife and was her security in case he um, in case he was a, a bad husband in case something happened in case she needed help that money was for her I couldn't actually find that in scripture so I want to be careful to not act like that's what the Bible teaches but that's the way the Jewish people back through uh, thousands of years have interpreted these passages for whatever it's worth. Um, But I'm going to cover that in a second. Um, In that, if it was to go to the Father, which is not how the Jews had historically taken this passage, that in that culture, by violating the woman, if the Father, usually consulting with with the young lady, said, this, nope, not going to allow the marriage, which he had every right to do. Um, this individual was out a good deal of money. It was probably, there, we don't know exactly what 50 shekels was, but it was probably equivalent to roughly $100,000, $200,000 today. Um, so he was out a good amount of money, or had to come up with a good amount of money over time, as he was able to. And... In that culture, it would be very hard for the, the woman to find um, marriage, those type of things, after that incident. So it was a, it was a protection on the part of, there, there was some, some means available to, to take care of her uh, it, going on into the future since this guy had, had done this. And, and this law is really skewed towards the perpetrator the, or the, 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 the man as being the, the one mostly at fault. And that's interesting because a lot of times today, in uh, the way even some of the hyper-macho masculinity culture, even within you know, Christianity, quote-unquote, paints things as, oh, the, the woman is the, the one that's at fault. If, the, if a man's seduced, the woman's at fault. It's, it's her fault. The, the man's just, you know, he's just a victim. Now, that's not the way the Bible presents it. The Bible presents, like, some pretty severe consequences of his actions. Basically, if a guy decided to seduce a woman... And there's consensual sex outside of marriage. 
he could be looking at either being married to somebody that he had not planned on being married to, um, or if that was decided against and having to give the money, or he could be denied marriage and have to give the money. Either way, it, in most cases, that's, that was not what the, the individual is looking for. And when you have, when there's been laws like this on the books, they, obviously things do happen behind closed doors. But as far as open, notorious things like this happening, very, very few and far between. Um, so the bride price was, if anything, for, for the compensation, for the, the family, for the ongoing provision, um, now that culturally speaking, it would be difficult for her to, to marry, and or the, the way the Jews interpreted this was uh, for, her on, for her, it was hers, it belonged to her. And that's part of why we, we give, the, the woman historically was given the ring is as a sign of the, because um, it was worth money and to be given to her. Um, also, we see echoes of this in the sense that if a guy uh, walks away even today uh, from marriage and there's divorce for whatever reason, typically the guy's going to be paying child support and helping to provide for the woman. And not that that always plays out the right way, but that's an echo of this heritage that we have. Um, so the fact that there was parental insight and involvement, which was taken for granted in our culture up until recently, in um, the blessing of, of a potential suitor does not equal the, the assertion that women are viewed as chattel. In fact, it was, was supposed to be for their good, and there was a lot of warnings against uh, bringing those children to, to anger. Headship does not equal property, and ultimately the bride price was a penalty against men who, uh, basically, a man who's going to leave a woman high and dry, who's going to get what he wants and then just walk off and leave her with the consequences. And today we kind of act like there aren't consequences because we, we deal with the consequences either through contraceptives, many of which are abortifacants, and so you have abortion uh, taking place through, through that, or just abortion. So we're able to act like, oh, there's no consequences to sex outside of marriage. No, there's, when guys and gals get together and, and have sex outside of marriage, there's consequences. Even today, women are left high and dry, or the baby is murdered as a result, and so there are consequences. And the the Bible, God wisely provided a provision to try to dis, to discourage this type of action and to make the guy man up if if that was the desire of the 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 wife the bride side the future potential bride side. So the other assumption is the Bible does not require the consent of the bride for marriage, only the groom and the father. Um, this, this will be the, the last uh, main header here. The Bible does not require the consent of the bride for marriage, only the groom and father. Now, when you go back to Genesis, Genesis 2.24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is before there's parents. There's a coming together of husband and wife, and that's the first marriage. There's no parents involved. There's no blessing of parents. They both are consenting to this union. They become one flesh apart from the need of any involvement on the part of parents. So the most basic 
need for union is apart from parents, and marriage is not fundamentally between a father and his and the the groom. There's no father here, so that's not the pattern. And Paul and Jesus point back to this pattern as this is the pattern: a man and a woman, not a man and a groom or a father coming together. They were both created mature. God made man and woman mature so that they could make an informed decision or a decision to come together. Genesis two twenty four, um, and the father, the man is told to leave his father and his mother, and by implication, the wife as well. So they come together to create a new family unit, which the father, the fathers have nothing to do with. The mothers have nothing to do with. Not that they don't have ongoing insight and input, but it's a new family unit, and there's there's a there's a new family. And ultimately, again, there's a new responsibility within that family apart from the parents. It's not a union of parents, but a leaving and cleaving. A covenant, by its nature, at least between human beings, requires consent in both parts. When you see covenants in Scripture, and just the nature of a covenant is an agreement before God between two people. An agreement. It's not one party being railroaded into. If one side is forced into or compelled under duress, that has always been seen in the case of covenants as grounds for nullifying a covenant. So you cannot have a valid covenant if somebody was tricked into, it was, if somebody was, um, was forced into not consenting into that relationship. By its nature, covenant whether it had an explicit ceremony or not, which oftentimes they did, was an agreement between two parties. And you see this, this practice, for example, Genesis 24, 58. Um, and they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So her consent was sought in the case. You see that this, this emphasized in Psalm 45. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. So consider. There's got to be consideration, a, a use of the mind, an inclining of the ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. There's not a forcing into. There's a consideration of, and, and then the covenant. Ephesians 6.4 uh, warns fathers. Obviously, they had a role in... Um, in specifically the case at hand, but they had a role in, in insight into the, the, the marriage of children. But it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So fathers are commanded not to provoke their children to anger. And you see this in Ruth 1.16, um, where there's a reason. I've always wondered, why is Ruth quoted at weddings? Because it's not between a husband and a, a man and a woman. But it, it's between a daughter and her mother-in-law. But it demonstrates the basic nature of a covenant. So when you hear Ruth here, she's demonstrating the nature of a covenant. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people should be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So in, Ruth, in the example of Ruth, you have this commitment, this, this willing participation, this understanding of what's involved in a desire to pursue it. 
And that's the nature of a covenant on both parts. Um, I, I thought that was the last. The last one is the Bible. Oh, this is the last assumption. The Bible holds to tribal view of the family in which marriage is between the parent and the groom. And so we've already covered this one, that the Bible um, is not between the parent and the groom. But that's, that's, this is quoting the skeptic in this case. The Bible holds to a tribal view of the family in which marriage is between the parent and the groom. Cannot be the case because of Genesis and the institution of marriage. It's, that's an absurd statement. That's an imposition on Scripture. It's fictitious. It's made out of whole cloth. It's, it's just not accurate to the, to the, the biblical view of marriage. Um, Gouge, here's the Puritan Gouge quoted, commenting on Paul, where Paul says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. William Gouge says, What wrong then do such parents unto their children as keep them, even after they are married? so straight under subjection as they cannot freely perform such duty as they ought to their husband and their wife. So he's saying there's these, these parents who after the, the, their children are married are basically riding over the, the, the children and playing mom and dad to the, to the man or woman. This is, a more than, this is more than a parent's authority reacheth unto. Yet many think that their children owe as much service to them after they are married as before, which is directly against this law. Others can never tarry out of their parents' houses, but as oft as they can, go thither. So there's parents who control what their children, even after they're married, do in their actions. He says that the ancient Romans, to show how unmeet this was, had a custom to cover the bride's face with a yellow veil, and so soon as she was out of her father's house, to turn about and about, and so to carry her to the house of her husband, that she might not know the way to her father's house again. Now I would reiterate that the actual law is to the, the husband, not just the, the bride, but the same, the same thing. All those pretenses of love to parents are more preposterous than pious. So the person who is being dictated by their parents and the man who is being run by his father or his uncle or his mom or his aunt or the wife who is being run by the parents or the, the, her uncle or her aunt or whatever the tribal person is in their life, that they will say, oh, it's love for family, it's love for parents. And he says that's preposterous. It's more preposterous than it is pious. And natural affection beareth more sway in such than true religion. Their pretense of piety to parents is no just excuse for that injury they do to husband and wife. So you're damaging, if, if somebody in their marriage does not leave and cleave, they're damaging the family unit. That doesn't mean you can't have wonderful relationships with parents or family members. But a man or woman has to be able to say when the, the father or mother, the uncle or aunt, the grandfather, grandmother comes in and, and starts to take responsibility and to be too nosy in the, in, the, in the decisions they're making, they have the right and duty to say, that's enough. We, we've, I've listened, but at the end of the day, we're responsible for where we are as a family and... Um, Women need to do the same thing, but as a man, you need to, a man needs to be able to say that's enough. That, you know, just back off. And too often, that doesn't happen. It causes huge problems in marriages. So it's a pretense of piety, not true piety. Um, and it does damage in so many cases. So why is the father the one who gets to say in this law that... Uh, 
to ultimately say, no, you're not marrying my daughter. Now, I think we can make the case that a good father, based off everything we just looked at, other passages, a good father is going to consult with his, his daughter. And human nature is that a father, fathers tend to be pretty protective of their, their daughters. So if there's any hint that this is not a good fit, that this guy is a, sh- a schmuck and I don't like him, what's a father going to do in a situation like that? A father's going to say, get lost. Dads are pretty good at that. That's part of the protection here. Because a wife, uh, a gal may feel obligated and have a hard time turning him down and saying no. But the dad, if there's any hint that this is not a good match and that you're just a loser and I don't want you with my daughter, especially after what just happened, that there is the ability to uh, say no. Um, But we think of, of sex as just some little, some cute thing that people do just you know, it's, like, it's portrayed as something that's fun and exciting and done all the time and that people should just be free to do all the time. Not the biblical perspective. The biblical perspective has to do with the reality of the situation, which is that there is a really uniting insects between a man and a woman. Even if it's a serial uniting, there is a uniting to the point that Paul warns us not to, men not to go into a prostitute because and he, he, he argues that you're defiling because you belong to Christ. You're defiling the body of uh, the, the the body of Christ. You're part. You're a member of the body of Christ, and you're going to go in and be united. Whether whether it's just a one night stand, you're still united. There's still a union. There's still more than we understand as far as what happens and transpires in sex. And it's designed for marriage. It's designed to unite in marriage and be a beautiful thing in marriage. But it's damaging and dangerous outside of marriage, and that's the biblical. Uh, perspective. Um, so, the marriage ceremony was important, and the Jews insisted on a covenant, but a marriage wasn't consummated until it was consummated physically. And so, by jumping the gun, in a sense, there's, and this is a willing situation, in that culture, there's an understanding that this is a, this is an act of union. They, they, they didn't have our light and flippant view of sexuality and sex and so they there was more to it they understood than just merely having a good time for one night so effectively i think we can deduce from that passage that there was in a sense a union that was potentially formed there there was something that was consummated and the question is is the father now going to negate what had what had happened Numbers 30, uh, verses 3 through 5 says, If a woman vows a vow to the Lord and binds herself by a pledge, while within her father's house and her youth, and her father hears of her vow and of her pledge, by which she has bound herself and says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand, and every pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father opposes her on the day that he hears of it, no vow of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed it. Of course, we don't like that passage today. But if you look at it from the perspective of, that's actually kind of a nice safeguard that if, uh, if a young lady within the, it, it's clear, it's a young lady within the household, not just in the household, but young, makes a pledge and a vow and decides and, and rashly commits to something, the father can negate it um, and overturn it, and it, it would not stand, as long as he does it right away. 
And so I think that what we're looking at with Deuteronomy 22 in this passage is the father having the right to veto, in a sense, what, is, what has already been consummated and to negate this physical union that they've entered into and to say no. And the penalty, either way, on the part of the man, that not only is he to spend uh, probably equivalent to hundred to 200000 today um, towards her either way, he has to marry her if the, the father says yes, he doesn't get to marry her if the father says no, and he has no right to, right of divorce in the future. He's stuck. Um, and on that topic of the union, because we have such a, a, a sadly, pathetically low view of sex today and what it does, and, and sex and marriage is such a beautiful thing, and it unites in a way that nothing else can, and it's very, very healthy in marriage, and it should be embraced. The Bible does not portray a low view of sex in marriage. The Bible lifts up a very high view of what sex is, so high that it is reserved for that intimacy between lifelong um, husband and wife. C.S. Lewis says, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one union, sexual, from all other kinds of union, which are meant to go along with it and make up the total union. The Christian attitude doesn't mean that there's anything wrong about sexual pleasure. It means that you mustn't isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasure of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things and spitting them out again. So the Bible upholds the full purpose that God has planned for marriage or for sex and, and the beauty of that. A summary of what we've said is found in the Westminster Directory for Public Worship. Parents ought not to force their children to marry without their free consent nor deny their own consent without just cause. The Westminster Confession um, says, it is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent. So essential to marriage and the covenant is consent. Um, Luther went so far to address tyranny on the part of parents. He says, this is in a tract that he entitled, the parents should neither compel nor hinder the marriage of their children, and the children should not become engaged without their parents' consent. Luther says, Martin Luther, it is quite certain, therefore, that parental authority is strictly limited. It does not extend to the point where to wreak damage and destruction to the child, especially to its soul. If then a father forces his child into marriage without love, he oversteps and exceeds his authority. He ceases to be a father and becomes a tyrant who uses his authority not for building up, which is why God gave it to him, but for destroying. He is taking authority into his own hands without God, indeed against God. The same principle holds good when a father hinders his child's marriage or lets the child go ahead on his own without any intention of helping him in the matter, as so often happens in the case of step-parents, etc., etc. In such a case, the child is truly free and may act as if his parent or guardian were dead. Mindful of what is best for himself, he may become engaged in God's name and look after himself as best he can. So the same grounds that we'd have with other authorities and we've established over uh, the course of Christianity that, Christ that Christians have the right and duty at points, even civilly, to disobey tyranny. The same applies in the case where um, a father is pushing a child into marriage where they shouldn't be married and they don't want to be married or refusing to be, them to be married when there's no just reason. 
he goes so far, he's actually, there's a letter where he's, he's a letter to a parent where the, the parent's refusing marriage and Martin Luther pleads with him and then says, move quickly because I'm going to have to do what I have to do as a minister of God's word and marrying these two if you don't act. Um, so my final response to the, the atheist, the skeptic, the agnostic is prove it to me. Show me this low view of marriage and prove what you're, the slander that you're, you're saying about this passage and misrepresenting it. Also, it's ironic and it's, it's uh, telling, I should say, that this passage, Deuteronomy 22, over and over and over is one of the, the lightning rods of, their, of the frustration. There's not many passages across Scripture. This is one of the few passages where, that is mocked and belittled and railed against and that's telling because God wrote a lot of stuff in his word and they're just getting this, this particular passage wrong and reading into it. I would ask further, on what basis, if you reject the scripture, do you condemn the, the subjugation of women, tyranny against women, oppression of women? Because that is the common natural course of human history apart from the influence of Christianity. On what basis? Where do you ground your morals? Where, where are you getting this? Just saying, I think, I believe, I feel, my society now says, Tom Holland demonstrates in his book, that what society is now saying in, in protecting women is the fruit of the Christian worldview. Step aside, stop using the Christian worldview, stand on your own worldview, and tell me why, how you can come across, if you, for example, hold to Darwinism, where survival of the fittest is the life of all creatures up until the last little bit. And anything after that is just artificial, really. It's just an overlay over the history of evolution. On what basis do you deny and, and reject survival of the fittest and, and oppression? And I'm not agreeing that it's right. I'm saying it's wrong. But on what basis do you condemn it as wrong? Is it just because I think what if I disagree with you? If it, is it just based on the fact that the culture now says? What if the culture changes as it has so often in the past? What if the culture, even today, there's more and more objectification and demeaning of women going on, and women are becoming more and more pieces of meat culturally? On what basis do you resist that? Without borrowing from the Christian worldview, which is what they'll tend to do. So the importance of this law... Wrapping up with the uses. Um, John MacArthur again says, I contend that women are used and abused more today than at any time in history. Pornography turns women into objects and victim, victims of dirty, cowardly peeping toms who leer at them with greedy eyes. Throughout the world, women are traded like animals for sexual slavery. In more civilized places, men routinely use women for no consequence, no commitment, sex, only to leave them pregnant without care and support. Abortion rights groups aid and abet male selfishness and irresponsibility. This has been proven over and over again as people have interacted at local abortion clinics and tried to help, is that there are men who love, like abusers, um, uh, pedophiles, um, those that are committing incest. These people love the ability to sweep everything under the rug with a quick and easy abortion. And they, they're, they're happy. 
about that. It's, it's a great way to cover their tracks. Of course, God sees, and we can, we can, that's our hope, and that's our encouragement. Uh, abortion rights groups aid and abet male selfishness and irresponsibility, and they free women to murder their unborn children. Women are left alone, emotionally scarred, financially destitute, and experientially guilty, ashamed, and abandoned. Where is, the, where is the freedom, dignity, and honor in that? And a lot of people have just given up. I mean, basically, now you have just a bunch of people that have given up on the physical scene and hanging out in, in cyberspace somewhere because of how brutal this has all become and how it's out, worked out. Dr. Sandra Richter sums up um, the passage. In Deuteronomy, victims of sexual misconduct were constitutionally protected from the economic consequences of assault and seduction. Walkaway Joes were required to man up uh, the young woman was shielded from the economic and social fallout of the encounter. Rape victims were assumed innocent. Women so abused were expected to report. Convicted rapists were executed. So I would just call the, the person who says, I, I stand up for women, and I believe in women's rights, and I think that women should be protected. Then you should be affirming this, these type of um, consequences for rape, this type of drastic action when it comes to rape, and um, this type of act, this type of severity when it comes to those who would just use and abuse women and leave them high and dry. The last application is spiritual willingness. I feel like a Baptist preacher. <laughs> the last, <laughs> my final point. I've caught myself as I'm saying it. Like I should, should I just shouldn't have thrown that in there because, <laughs> okay. Uh, Spiritual willingness. And this is the beautiful thing, that God sovereignly takes and transforms our hearts that were cold and dead in sin. And marriage is a picture of the gospel. Paul says this, he talks, he's talking about mystery, the union, the one flesh union of husband and wife. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and to the church, Ephesians 5.32. Um... Christ softens and battles heart like our hearts apart from Christ are we're rebels and we 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 lash out against God's word we hate God's word we don't want his plan of salvation but he softens and he loves us first so that we love him and he makes us willing not by not he doesn't Christ transforms hearts that are hardened and rock hard and cold and warms them and softens them and, and gives them new life so that willingly we come and willingly we come. No, no, one, no one truly comes to the gospel mad at Christ and upset that they're having, okay, fine, I'll repent. You know, like, this is against my will. I'm under duress. That, the spiritual marriage is the same thing we're talking about in that the softening effect leads to a willingness on the part of us, his children and his Bride the church. Uh, Psalm 110, 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion our mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer them. This is a prophecy of Christ. Will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments from the womb in the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. So Christ brings in a people who offer themselves up freely to him because of the work of his Holy Spirit. Psalm 45, 13, all glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she's led to the king with virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace 
of the king. So there's a, there's a joyfulness that's pictured in the wedding of the lamb, the, the, the wedding feast of the lamb, the, the coming to Christ of his beloved. And we see this picture in Hosea, Hosea. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. So here's a verbal profession of the bride saying, uh, covenanting with my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. They had been into idolatry. For I will remove the names of the Baals from your mouth, and they shall be remembered by my name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day. So this is a wedding. This is a coming together where there's a, there's a profession of, of vows, my husband. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth to you to you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. God, in coming to his church, in cleansing of us of our sins and calling us to repentance, he's a good God who loves us as a good um, husband. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel and I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on, and this is amazing, and I will have mercy on no mercy. Guess what? Every one of us was no mercy. By nature, we are the children of wrath. We are, he, he just says a name here and I will have mercy on no mercy. We were no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So there's, again, this picture of the exchange of commitment, of willing uh, covenanting together. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that you bring us to um, just thank you for, for offering up your son. Thank you that he is good husband for his bride, the church. And help us to know him, not just as friends or acquaintances, but as, as his bride, the church, as uh, spiritually, spiritually united to him through faith. Thank you that he's a good husband, that he loves us, that he cares for us. Every need that we have, we can bring before him. He's never too severe. He's never too uh, lax. He, he knows how to deal with us faithfully. And we can come to the throne of grace with any and every sin and shortcoming. And we can lay it at his feet. And he, um, and there's nothing too small, nothing too big. Nothing, nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing that we can't be forgiven of. But we bring every sin, lay it at the feet of Christ. And we experience mercy. And he gives us mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace, good gift upon good gift. And he loves us. So help us to come and thank you for the the call to come to the wedding feast of the Lamb. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.